gathered together from the cosmic reaches of the universe, here in this great hall of justice. Superheroes have to be around other superheroes. You know what I mean? That's the Hall of Justice is more about them just commiserating about their powers and less about them like actually fighting crime. Seth Everett is the best there is at what he does, Bob. And what he does is the Hall of Justice podcast. Go, go, go with a smile. Hey, folks, welcome to another edition of the Hall of Justice podcast. This is episode 302, and this is one that has been in the works for a while. Um, you know, we've talked about the genre, the superheroes, Star Wars, all the pop culture things that we talk about on this show. And I've always wondered how we got to the point where in the 1990s, I was told by a program director not to talk about Batman. And now I have a podcast with thousands of listeners just about Batman or just about superheroes and Marvel <laughs> and DC and things like that. We have an absolute perfect person to have this conversation with. Uh, the Associated Press called him a pop culture ambassador. He is a colleague of mine. He's a trustee professor at the television radio film department at the Newhouse School, where I am an adjunct professor. Uh, I'm also an alum. He's the publisher of at least five books, including Primetime, Prime Movers, Adventures on Primetime, Television Studies, and much, much more. You've seen him on 60 Minutes, The Today Show, Good Morning America. It's nice to know he doesn't have a favorite. Uh, he's been on MSNBC, on NPR. He's been Talk of the Nation, The Wall Street Journal, much, much more. Please welcome to the Hall of Justice, my friend, Bob Thompson. Bob, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. I suppose we could have done this in your office uh, uh, instead of Zoom. Of course, and we'll have to do the next one uh, in, in person up at uh, Syracuse University's campus. When I conceptualized this podcast, um, I look back at my own fandom. And I was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 48 years old at the time of this recording. If you're listening to this in the future, do tell me how the flying car is. Um, <laughs> and, and the idea that, you know, when I was a kid, uh, Wonder Woman was on TV. Uh, the Incredible Hulk was on TV. I was a massive Knight Rider fan. Greatest American hero. I saw your book about Stephen Cannell. I, I cannot wait to see that. Uh, the Greatest American Hero, Quantum Leap was a big, big thing for me. And it was always that it was always put in a certain genre, that there was a limit. And I wonder back then, what's your thought on why were those shows being made? Because they were certainly not the mainstream. And the reference I make is when Stan Lee tells the story, the late, great Stan Lee, told the story about how the television producers on The Incredible Hulk had to change Bruce Banner's name to David because Bruce was too much of a gay name. I, I, I could not get over that. It was such a stigma about superheroes, yet they existed. Yeah, okay. So uh, a huge, a huge question. First of all, you mentioned how uh, back in the uh, 90s, people said, oh, you can't talk about Batman. Somehow mm -hmm. that's just too, too lowbrow. 
uh, a decade before that in the 1980s when I started my career, the idea was that you couldn't talk about uh, uh, television in an academic environment. That was considered mm. way too lowbrow. Uh, we had to fight that battle for almost a decade with English departments and can you believe they're giving college credit for uh, watching TV and stuff. Now, of course, every snooty English department in the country is teaching right. a television class. The same trajectory went with, uh, I think, with superheroes as well. But as we look back in those times, it, it it's interesting in that, yes, superhero stuff used to be considered comic books, the things that you were supposed to put down and go do your homework, uh, stuff for kids, reading on magazine racks and all of that. But even in, from the beginning, there were glimmers of relevance uh, within the superhero uh, genre. Of course, you know, even Superman in the beginning, the uh, connection with historical reality and Hitler and all of that kind of stuff, which, by the way, regular television wasn't doing in its early days. Uh, we, we told stories about the Marine Corps during the Vietnam War on shows like Gomer Pyle, which mm -hmm. never mentioned that there was a Southeast Asia, much less a war there. Um, Whereas we, uh, uh, you know, superheroes have been kind of incorporating history for a while. You mentioned the Incredible Hulk uh, and that uh, Bruce Banner story, of course, is an alarming one. Um, but that aside, uh, I remember, and I was already in probably just starting graduate school when that show uh, debuted. It was on Friday nights, remember? Mm -hmm. Dukes of Hazard, Incredible Hulk, and Dallas, if I'm not mistaken, right. on CBS. Um, and... Unlike Dallas, which was this lathery soap, or unlike Dukes of Hazard, which was this goofy, borderline offensive, sometimes actually offensive, uh, uh, romp, uh, rural comedy drama, whatever it was, um, The Incredible Hulk, yes, is about this ridiculous superhero premise of a guy that gets mad and turns green and can lift a car. But that show, in a lot of ways, was doing a lot more contemporary issues in disguise the trojan horse of a uh of a superhero uh, genre in that it was an anthology series which we didn't see many of back in the uh, 80s every uh week uh, uh david banner would find himself in another town uh, as he's searching for the cure to his problem or whatever uh and he would meet somebody whose problem uh, he had to solve and you would slide in all of these different kinds of stories uh, that you couldn't do in a regular cop show or doctor show or lawyer show uh, or something like that. And uh, that that was, I would go so far as to say, was a pretty thoughtful, uh, pretty literate uh, uh, program for its time back in the early 1980s. Nothing to the extent that we've got to in some of the superhero things now, which are some of the most challenging. I'm thinking of just off the top of my head, uh, Black Panther and WandaVision, you know, some sure. of the highlights of the uh, movies and television of the last while. Um, but I think there was always that possibility with the superhero genre. And I think it's inherent in the premise itself, which explores this idea of taking human life and then taking a certain portion of that human life and escalating it to some fantastic realm and then exploring the real world through the lens of those powers or uh, sensibilities or whatever it is that the particular superhero program is looking at. But the thing that that 
you know, and you can use the Hulk. I would, I would use Wonder Woman as an example. Um, I've gone back and watched a lot of that stuff, you know, over the last 10 years or so, you know, DVDs, Blu-rays, streaming services, what, what have you. And the plots are very, very vanilla. Like they're, 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 it's, yep. it's very, so who's the target demo? Because are kids supposed to be in love with Linda Carter or is it adults? Because it was in prime time. It wasn't a, a Saturday morning or an after school kind of show. I never understood who was the target demo for some of this stuff. The the 66 Batman series is, a, is another example. Okay, so uh for one of one of the reasons why the plots were so vanilla and were so sim- simple and simple minded at times uh was a very uh issue of demographics which is who was it aimed at this is the era of broadcast television it was aimed at everybody network uh, uh television right up into the 1980s had 90% over 90% in primetime of total viewership, which means 90% of the people watching TV during prime time right through the 70s were watching ABC, CBS, or NBC. All the rest, less than 10%, uh, was divided up into the emerging cable uh, uh, channels and, of course, the PBS affiliates and the independent stations. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, for a network um, to consider itself getting its proper share of the audience, it had to get a third of the total audience, about a 30 share, which nothing gets anymore except occasionally uh, football and, of course, the Super Bowl. Um, so you had to appeal not to something that a 60-year-old woman would really like, not to something a little kid would really like, but something that everybody would find more desirable than what was on the other two channels, least objectionable programming, it was called. So everything had to be kind of appropriate to an eight-year-old. It ought to also be appropriate enough that that eight-year-old's grandmother would watch it. So until cable broke up that audience, and that started in a big way in the 1980s, and now, of course, streaming has broken the audience into a million little pieces, you, there was only so much you could do because you had to get 30 million people to be a hit you can't get 30 million people to watch an intellectual, right. challenging, difficult uh, kind of uh, um, kind of show. So the demographic who it was trying to appeal to was everyone. We did have superheroes on uh, Saturday morning cartoon. Wonder Woman was prime time. Uh, the Secrets of Isis was on Saturday morning. That mm-hmm. title means new things now than it did back in the uh, yeah, day right. when it was came. But, you know, even there, I'm thinking of Wonder Woman, and you're right, I go back and watch Wonder Woman, and uh, it's it's plots, it's writing is just so by today's well, standards. Can I just interrupt you? Because I, I, yeah. I haven't said this on the show in a long time. The, Steve, <laughs> they had Steve Trevor, and then they advanced the show 40 years, so they had the same actor be Steve Trevor's son, and you couldn't have any romance between Steve Trevor and Diana Prince because that would be icky. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I, continue. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> you know, even that advancing in time, that's the kind of thing that we do all the time uh, now. Uh, uh, yeah. and, and we consider it avant-garde. Uh, they were it was doing too expensive to, 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 to recreate the 1940s. Right, exactly, right. Uh, but anyway, uh, even with Wonder Woman, for all of the just 
silliness of, of that whole thing, which to some extent was required for reasons that I talked about before. Mm-hmm. That show was in its own way advancing some things that weren't happening uh, uh, elsewhere in that it actually was called Wonder Woman. We had a female uh, uh, protagonist who was the one wielding power, uh, who was stronger than everyone else around her. And that was only just beginning to happen in the 1970s on television. There was the big kind of uh, um, uh, female triptych of Police Woman starring Angie Dickinson, uh, The Bionic Woman, uh, and Wonder Woman. And you could tell how unique that was because they felt obligated to put the title of woman in yeah. all three of them, Bionic Woman, uh, uh, Wonder Woman, and Police Woman, because that was considered so unusual that it needed to be put in the title um, uh, uh, the title itself. So even in its own way, the superhero genre and science fiction is a broader category has oftentimes been at the uh, uh, at the avant-garde of television finally getting into dealing with contemporary issues, which it really didn't do in any big way until all the family on the news it did, but uh, sure. entertainment it didn't. Um, and science fiction managed to slip that in. Star Trek you, used to deal with issues of race and uh, uh, gender and all those kinds of things we now talk about. It just did it disguised. They were people from another planet and yeah, all that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. Twilight Zone would be another example of, of, of that. And the superhero genre, I think, is uniquely poised to be able to talk about things that might otherwise seem preachy or that otherwise might seem controversial and when it's disguised in this you know category of people who can fly in tights it it somehow slips in well you referenced uh the dukes of hazard and there was a there was a stretch and it was just so happened you know i'm a child of the 80s i mean i was born in 1974 so i'm a child of the 80s and there was uh knight rider and quantum leap and the greatest american hero which was you know a spoof of the superman comics and it seemed like there were comic book shows that didn't have a comic book backing and now every new show is based on a comic book now you have you know the falcon and the winter soldier and you have star girl is out there and they're all based on comic books but back then it was just creatives coming up with their own ip not thinking in terms of a franchise, just trying to tell a story. Right. Uh, and in doing it, advancing the idea, you pointed out that Greatest American Hero was to parody. Uh, right. By the way, a very brilliant, underappreciated show, I think. Never, never was a big hit. The theme song was a bigger hit than the show was. Yeah, the theme uh, song is the close to this podcast. It, it, the 300 oh, episodes, we, we close with that with that song. But doing that show in the uh, 1980s was was the idea of almost doing a critique of superhero shows. And and at the same time, that, that program did some serious things. Even before that, there was a half-hour parody of uh, uh, superheroes in the, well, this would have been maybe late 60s, starring William Daniels. Later, it would be in St. Elsewhere and the voice of Kit. Kit, yep. By the way, how do you like that? That, that? that epitomizes the transformation of TV in the 80s. You have William Daniels on one of the greatest shows ever made, St. Elsewhere, simultaneously playing the voice of Kit, arguably not one of the greatest shows ever made, though I agree. And he didn't want to be credited. 
for for my entire right. life, you wondered who that car was, and it was a mystery because there was never anything in the credits. Although, if anybody had ever uh, watched Boy Meets World uh, uh, afterwards or seen St. Elsewhere right. or all the other things it was in, nobody it sounds quite like uh, uh, William Daniels. But anyway, he, William Daniels has starred in a show called, I think it was called Mr. Terrific. And there was another show called Captain Nice. These were early parodies of wow. uh, superhero genres. Um, so you're right. Although pop culture, um, mass media uh, culture, uh, TV and radio before it got into using the you know recycling stuff. Superman started, of course, as a comic, and then it uh, they made a radio show of it. They did that very cheesy uh, TV version of it before we got into the big blockbusters. You're so talking we about were, George Reeves, uh, Christopher Reeves. Oh, George Reeves, yeah, in George the early Reeves. one, right, right, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yes, yes, right. uh, in the early uh, black and white, and it was radio before that. So, um, but I think the reason now is that Marvel and the very fact that we call it the Marvel universe, I think is appropriate because the Marvel universe is getting to be about as big as the real universe uh, is <laughs> uh, in the, in its sheer output. And that has become such an extraordinary branding behemoth. Uh, I mean, I think you could probably say Marvel is right up there uh, in the 21st century with what Walt Disney was in the uh, uh, in the 20th, where you know immediately what it is. It's got immediate identification and uh, sale value. And I think given the, not without exception, but given the pretty steady, extraordinary success of that, the idea now is why would you do a new, you know, uh, why would you come up with some whole new thing uh, when you've got these branded, but within that they do that. I keep coming back to WandaVision because I think it was really one of uh, the masterpieces here. That was very much also a parody of superheroes mm-hmm. and also a parody of television. One of the best, I think, parodies of the old sitcom laugh track uh, it, uh, TV homage, show yeah. that I've seen anywhere. If you track through history, what what fascinated me, you know, people talk about the Superman movie. Uh, Christopher Reeve, the Superman movie. And it was the first time a superhero was treated with that kind of gravitas. But the difference there is Richard Donner, and to his admission, Richard Donner said, I didn't want to do a comic booky thing. Lex Luthor is the only thing that came from the comic books. Uh, there wasn't a brainiac or a parasite or anything like that. It was, you know, he would he he had a real estate scam. Um, and, and things like that. And it was the majesty of seeing Superman. And that starts this ball rolling of what could we do? And there's a this line from 1978 with Superman through Star Wars. And it just seemed to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. When, in your estimation, does the industry start to realize why are we belittling this stuff? This is real, and this is big bucks. Okay, well, I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought up the importance of Superman, because I think that first Superman movie, you're right, we'd had Superman in TV and radio and comics before that, but never had so much money been thrown at so many people uh, for a superhero uh, thing. And not only did that get the ball rolling with these big, uh, huge-budget superhero Uh, things it in many ways got the ball rolling for what we now think of as the modern blockbuster 
Now, of course, there have been blockbusters before in Hollywood, Gone with the Wind and all of those kinds of uh, uh, mm-hmm. things. But the the kind of entertainment industrial complex that really came out of uh, 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 movies like Superman, including product placement and incredible, extraordinary marketing and, and, and all of that, really did start things, uh, start things rolling. And I think one of the reasons that super, the superhero genre was poised for this new era of Hollywood and television is that along with all of this was coming extraordinary advances in technology. Mm-hmm. Go back and watch the George Reeve Superman and, and watch how he flies. Uh, uh, look sure. at Wonder Woman when she spins around and then it blurs and she becomes Wonder Woman. By the time we get to uh, uh, the late 70s with Superman and then certainly in the subsequent decades, the technology available uh, brought on by computers and then digital and CGI and all that stuff, all of a sudden made it possible to do stuff that really looked like it was happening that was completely uh, not happening. And it was a lot harder to not use that. Uh, The superhero genre was perfect for what technology could do. Yes, you can still make a nice romantic comedy and yes, you can still make a small story about a shrimp farmer or whatever, but when you're trying to get people into theaters in the age of television and now in the age of streaming, you've got to give them something that's worth going to see on a big screen with a big sound system. And that means the kinds of stuff that you see in superhero genres. It, it, it can make, uh, it, it features all of that thing. It's why when, uh, uh, what, the last Batman came out, they charged extra money for it. Uh, um, and all of that. So I, I think cinema has become almost overtaken by these things because they do something that the big screen can feature that uh, you know that 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 others can't. I want to switch gears and ask you about Star Wars. Uh, Star Wars was this idea, this this brilliant idea from this guy named George Lucas. He comes up with this movie. They didn't know that there would be a sequel, yet he called that movie Episode Four, uh, a visionary. There's no secret about that. Uh, the Empire Strikes Back captivated America and the world. Um, Return of the Jedi comes, and then Star Wars goes dark. There's books written. There's comic books written. And it goes dark for a long time until the late 90s when they decide to do the prequels. And then you fast forward now, and you have a whole Star Wars television d- division, and you have these shows that are literally captivating the world, The Mandalorian, Obi-Wan Kenobi, this new Andor series that looks great. What about the evolution of Star Wars? And did you think when you saw the first one that 40 years later we'd still be talking about? Um, did I think that? No. Uh, I'll tell you the story of my... I saw Star Wars. It probably would have was, was the perfect time you would think to uh, uh, see it. It came out in the um, spring of 77, and I was uh, uh, just ending high school. I was okay. getting ready to uh, uh, go off to college. And we had a stand in line uh, to, to, to see that. It sure. was already, you know, being it was big hyped up. Everybody was looking forward to it. Uh, it was an event to go stand in line to. By the way, I didn't have to stand in line to see all the president's men. Uh, couple of years before that or a year before that or whatever mm. um anyway we stood Great in line movie. 
Jason Robert. And I remember uh, seeing Star Wars and thinking that was a cool movie. And when they go into hyperspace and all of that, there was some great special effects. Uh, um, it was loads of fun. But it did not have the impact on me that I immediately realized in walking out of the theater that day where there was this look in some people's eyes, especially people my age, like they had been to the mountaintop and they had seen some kind of truth. Uh, um, and uh, when I started teaching, uh, this would have been, I don't know, five years later, um, uh, many, many of these students, especially male, interestingly enough, uh, who were coming and majoring in film, uh, that movie was what made them want to, they wanted to do stuff like that. That made them want to become uh, uh, filmmakers. So that was a really important film. But no, I personally would not have thought that that was going to create a world that we would be talking about uh, uh, today, many, many years later. So when they announced the prequels, what's your reaction? Well, I suppose part of it was uh, it's about time. I'm surprised they haven't gone back to this well a long time ago because mm. there was a big gap between those that first three and the uh, the, the ones uh, after. And by that time, the whole idea of, uh, you know, going, uh, making films the way you would distribute fast food on the franchise uh, branding uh, kind of value was already, you know, kicking in um, and had kicked in. Uh, so I, I think it, it, it's it's interesting to speculate what took so long um, because there were so many reasons why that might have happened, uh, why that might, might have happened sooner. And now, of course, it's, you know, you've got Marvel and you've got Star Wars and they're all under this Disney uh, thing, these enormous uh, uh, sorts of universe. And I guess when you create, the great thing about these fictional created worlds is you can keep extending them. You can write their own histories. You can do prequels. You can do sequels. Um, uh, and as long as you're a little bit careful that they can stand to some extent uh, on their own, you can keep gathering new fans uh, at the same time uh, getting old fans to want to watch every minute. And if you are both a Star Wars and a Marvel fan, it's getting harder and harder to you know, keep a full-time job and keep up with right. those two worlds. Right. Oh, I get asked on Twitter all the time if I've seen something yet. People have asked me, no, I haven't seen the Sandman yet. I don't have time. I will. And I promise is, I will. This is, uh, this is our job. I mean, especially in right. my case, my job is to keep up with this. Yeah. Uh, and even that, even when it's something I do all my work day, uh, it's just amazing how, uh, uh, how much uh, they are squeezing from this. And I keep thinking there has got to be a saturation point. But as more and more football kept coming onto TV as cable and ESPN and streaming and all these things came along, I kept thinking eventually we would reach a saturation point with that. I was wrong about football. I may be wrong about this. Well, there's a response to that, you know, and, and we've studied that, uh, you know, over the 300 episodes or so that we've done on this podcast, um, people say, you know, will the bubble burst? I think what's happened now is we have an embarrassment of riches and you can see when something is made by a fan. I'll give an example. John Favreau, when you watch The Mandalorian, you feel like the right. people writing it are diehard fans. That are, they are, yes, they yes. are fans of the stuff. And then you can see other things 
and you want I'll throw birds of prey. It's an example. You could tell that the filmmakers cashed a paycheck and you could tell that they don't have the reverence for the source material and you can feel it. And we're at this point now where there isn't always a reason for it because you've seen the success when a fan is building this. The guys who did Avengers, Infinity War, and Endgame love Marvel. And you can feel that love in the film. Yeah, that, right. You, you make a very good point. And, and I think that uh, uh, oftentimes that makes, makes for good filmmaking. Though I think there's a place for both types. Uh, there, there is a sense, and I'm getting more and more of this as I continue uh, engaging in the Marvel, Marvel universe, that there's a place for both the fanboy who's making the thing and who's got all this reverence, but I also think there's a, a place occasionally for other uh, points of view and other uh, kinds of minds coming in uh, to make this. There is a sense now, and you know, again, back in the old days when you heard references, little, uh, I guess what we now call Easter eggs, they weren't called that back then, but references, mm -hmm. uh, intertextual kinds of things, that was really exciting. It was like a payoff. If you understood it, you were part of that world. It was like being part of the club. There gets to be a point now where I think some of these uh, direct, uh, director slash super fans who make these occasionally make these nods, occasionally give these indications of their reverence that gets very, very close to want me, wanting me to roll my eyes at them. It's like, okay, we know you love this, uh, all this uh, kind of thing. So anyway, I think there's a lot of um, different ways that can go. By the way, you mentioned the TV version of Batman. Before we leave today, we should we should talk sure. about that. Sure. You know, the, the, the colors uh, were what I remembered. And, you know, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, and I saw it in reruns. Um, it was, you know, you always wanted to know it was it was perfect for my childhood. You know, I've said on this podcast a hundred times, I wasn't a comic book reader until college. I was at Syracuse. And the, do you remember UUTV? Uh, they oh, yeah. they sent me on an assignment to cover in 1992. I was a freshman. They had me cover the death of Superman in the comic books. And I went to this comic book store to interview people. I went about a week and a half later and i said uh you know i want to see these books and i saw hal jordan green lantern uh go bananas and i said boy this is targeting my demographic like this is this is for me and, and and i started getting into comics as a young adult um batman the animated series was on uh x-men the animated series was on and in our dorm we would literally uh, vhs tape these things and we would watch them at night in the dark. We would watch Batman, the animated series all the time. And I'm not just talking about a select group. It was like 30 of us would watch this stuff. We were transfixed. And so the Batman show to me characterizes something of that was like the super friends, which was my access to these guys. I had super friends pillows. I remember that when I, when I was a kid, but I never knew who Bruce Wayne was until I was a young adult. Oh, so many interesting things uh, about that. By the way, I had, uh, uh, I remember a Batman bubble bath 
thing uh, from the original, from the 60s series, which, by the way, that 60s thing, I still contend, is one of the most brilliant. Oh, so smart. Television. Uh, and, and the fact that it was made as far back as it was uh, in that it both was a satisfying comic book representation over the top but isn't that exactly what indiana jones was it was supposed to be like an old adventure comic brought to the uh, uh screen um, when it came out on uh on blu-ray i bought it and i rewatched the entire series i would say 2018 2017 something like that and it holds up because oh, it was loved it. it was I freaky so and fun. hallucinogenic back then it's freaky and hallucinogenic yep. now the colors and whatever but it stayed so true to the comic book aesthetic the you know the uh askew camera uh, uh angles and the the actual text uh, in the thing it's so much new what a comic book was it parodied it it embraced it uh it, it even it was serialized you'd have an uh one episode would go to the next and nothing was serialized on television back then except uh daytime um that was really a, a brilliant show and then you brought up i totally forgotten this the animated series which also oh, the batman was, animated series of course. that was a really really fine uh you know i think a lot of people say oh that's kind of uh off in the uh you know, the closet of the canon of these great superhero things. That animated series did some really fascinating things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you listen, if you go through the, uh, the episodes of this podcast, uh, Kevin Conroy has been the voice of Batman has been on a bunch of times. James Tucker, one of the writers on that show. Um, a lot, a lot of folks uh, have been, uh, been on that show. Um, we're going to have to have you back <laughs> because uh, there's so much that we haven't touched on. And I want to put a pin in the DC versus Marvel conversation. Where's Warner Brothers going? Uh, you and I had an off air conversation about what they did with Batgirl. And I'd like to postpone that for all for 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 a future episode of the podcast. What I do want to end on, though, is the this BBC model where if you if anybody ever watches the original office, you saw that the office was about 14 episodes. It was season one was six episodes, six highly produced, highly constructed episodes. And now with streaming the way it has been, we've seen this model where television shows are coming out. The White Lotus was six episodes. Uh, Stranger Things, I think, is 10 episodes, and that's considered long. Um, you have 13, 10, 8. But what's happened is the production value of each individual episode is almost of a film quality. If not, it is a film quality. Whereas the model of the 22 episodes seem to be gone. And the superhero genre has been affected by that because we just finished Smallville, Arrow, The Flash, and, and, and all those different shows, and they were doing 22 episodes. And now you mentioned WandaVision, it was nine episodes. Where did we get to that point? Well, we got to it when you no longer, when we got out of the network era again, uh, and this is the, the original thing for everything, when you quit having to appeal to 30 million uh, people. Right. The thing about the network era is you can, and also the technology that, that got us away from linear, you watch something when it was on and that was it. Uh, the old network model before the VCR, when you, you, you showed stuff and people watched it and, and, and you had to watch it when it was on. Uh, the smartest way manufacturing model there was you'd come up with a hit show 
And then every episode was an advertisement for the next episode. You would watch it every week. What we now call appointment television, all television was that. You had your favorite shows and you watched them all the time. And then you wanted to And you maximize. patterned your whole life around making yes, sure and, that and, you were and, home by Tuesday uh, night at nine o'clock to watch whatever. Exactly. And I very much grew up in that uh, period. I can, I can mark certain points of my life when certain shows were on in certain days. Um, uh, Tuesday nights uh, uh, when Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley was mm -hmm. on. Friday nights when uh, uh, Partridge Family, Brady Bunch, and Love American Style, that very super sexual, I can't believe it got away with what it did back then. <laughs> uh, anyway, I, I remember all of that stuff. Sure. Um, so there, the best model was you'd get a series, you'd develop it, uh, uh, and if it became a hit, you made as many as you could. And 22-episode model was what uh, uh, prevailed now on network TV and back in the uh, you know start 80s. Uh, if you go back to the 60s, there were 36 episodes per uh, year in some of those. And I Love Lucy was something like 35, 36 episodes. Yeah, you're right. You get the old Green Acres box sets, and they're 32 episodes uh, uh, per year. Um, and then they'd go to a 13-week uh, summer rerun. Um, that was great because you'd get to see the same thing over and over, and everybody has their favorite series, whatever. It was not good for the artistic quality of TV. We are in way better shape now because uh, one of the reasons Sopranos was so good is they do 13 mm -hmm. episodes and then they take a year off, two years off. I mean, the idea that art, uh, um, uh, good art cannot be made on, on, on call like that. By the way, the networks are still doing that. Abbott Elementary got these Emmys and Emmy nominations on a uh, short, what was it, 13 episodes? I forget what the first season was. It's doing 22 this uh, hmm. uh, coming season. Yeah, the Goldberg but, still does 22. It's right, wild. yeah. But the idea of being able to do shorter seasons with longer periods in between and then being able to end it when you're done, uh, uh, which isn't always the case, uh, but sometimes is much better for what we traditionally think of art. The old way would have been Beethoven would have uh, performed, uh, uh, they'd have performed the uh, Fifth Symphony. And then the uh, executive would have come up and said, wow, that was really, really, really good. Can you give us another movement? Um, and of course, that would have ruined the symphony. It was, it was, it was done. Um, and the old network uh, uh, model had a lot of issues involved in it, with, but part of it was the quantity that you had to keep churning out. Now we've got a quantity issue, but it's the number of series being uh, uh, released. Netflix has probably released three series since we started this conversation. Um, but uh, you, th there are these limited numbers. I mean, I'm thinking of the great masterpieces like The Wire and Breaking Bad. We're talking like 65 episodes total. That would have been, um, that would have been two seasons of a 60s television show. It's wild. It's it's wild. What I what I find is I, I find this model to be much more appealing. Um, you know, White Lotus is a perfect example. You know, I started hearing all the the uh, awards buzz and my wife says to me, you got to see the show. It's it, it, it's brilliant. And when I look at it and I see it's only six episodes, I saw it in three days. And it was it was phenomenal, but it wasn't this massive commitment. You know, I have a joke on 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 this podcast. Um, I'm a completist. If I start something, I'll finish it. So Marvel 
I've seen everything. I've seen all the episodes of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. simply because I'm a completist. It's why I haven't seen Game of Thrones. It's why I haven't seen a James Bond movie. And I don't apologize for that. I just, if I was going to see one James Bond movie now, I'd have to see 35 movies. And who has that kind of time? But one of the great blessings of the uh, streaming era, and this started with the VCR. You know, we, we forget. I remember a time before the VCR when you could not see a movie unless you happened to catch it at late at night on television. Uh, I, I remember everybody said, Citizen Kane, greatest movie. Citizen Kane this, Citizen Kane that. I was dying to see Citizen Kane. You couldn't. There was no place that you could go get a movie um, uh, at the library or something. It wasn't until the VCR uh, that you could actually see this stuff when you wanted to. And then library of uh, libraries of stuff started um, getting bigger. And now the great thing is that even if Marvel quit making anything new, new generations can continue to discover those things. And if with Marvel, if you start from the beginning, you need about, what, two years to get through the whole uh, uh, thing. Um, uh, and this stuff has a value that it didn't have back when the day that it played for three seasons, it disappeared. And maybe if it was lucky, it got to go uh, into the reruns. Now, at some point in your dotage, you'll have the opportunity to start James Bond from the beginning. And do it uh, uh, when you if we get uh, another want. pandemic. Uh, uh, yeah, or whatever. Um, uh, uh, when you get fired because you're spending too much time watching Marvel yeah, stuff. That's right. Um, but, uh, but, uh, the the idea now that uh, we've got like we used to like we had literature uh, books. You, you you've got all of this stuff doesn't go away like it used to. Um, uh, and that means that. There's more value to any of this that gets made because you're going to be able to see it. Some of the great shows like Breaking Bad, most people weren't watching that from the beginning. They were getting caught up later. Critics have more of an influence because they can talk about things. The buzz can be high like you and White Lotus. And then you say, oh, I'll go watch that as opposed right. to, oh, I'd like to go watch that. It's already off. It is absolutely uh, fascinating. Uh, Bob, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I, I, I had a feeling. I, I've seen so many interviews that you've done. I knew where this was going to go. Uh, it's a standing invite. I would love to have you back. There's so many things that we didn't touch. There were so many points where we could have gone off on a tangent, and it would have been literally a rudderless podcast. Uh, thank, you so, thank you like so much for your time. I'd like to come back and do a whole episode on Night Rider. We have a lot to say about that. Now you're speaking my language. It was funny. I look forward to the next one. Thank you so much for having me. That is Professor Bob Thompson from the Newhouse School at Syracuse University. He's also a founding director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture and widely quoted in media. We are absolutely fortunate to have him on this podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll have another episode next Thursday as we continue here to dive in this genre that we all love so well and we have the greatest american hero song to thank and spotify hasn't flagged that we'll see you next time